Friends, before we prepare to hear uh, the the word of God read, let us look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we are uh, so grateful uh, for your love for us in Jesus Christ. Your love and your grace, your goodness that greets us this morning. The warmth of this place, the blessing of fellowship, the gift of studying and reflecting together. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us into all wisdom and truth. That your word, O Lord, would seep into every part of our being and that you would indeed continue to transform our our hearts and our minds, conforming it to that of your son Jesus. We pray that your blessing would be upon those who are on their way and those not able to be with us. Lord, might your spirit guide us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the text today is in... The book of Acts, chapter 9, 1 through 19. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as, he was do, uh, now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. And at this moment he is praying, and he has seen a vision. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. 
Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So in our continuing uh, Bible study series on light, our focus for today is on the uh, conversion or the transformation of Saul of Tarsus to become one of the greatest apostles, right, of, of the gospel. And this text is uh, probably a familiar one um, to, to many of us, right, to, to many of you, um, as this is that, that story that is quite remarkable, um, where someone, uh, in this case Saul of Tarsus, appears by all human rationality, all human explanation, seems beyond God's salvation. Right, who seems beyond God's redemption for all of the, the terror that he wrecked, all the persecution that he uh, imposed upon the church, uh, the great violence uh, that he inflicted on so many people. Um, we see here in this, uh, in this text uh, God doing something so extraordinary and so remarkable with actually two men. And this can actually be called a, a tale of, of two men, right? or a tale of two individuals, Saul of Tarsus and Ananias. And we'll see that in a, in a few moments. Now, the book of Acts, as we know, is connected also to the gospel according to Luke. Right? And so when we read Acts, we always have to consider Luke and vice versa. If we read Luke... Always consider Acts. They were written together. Uh, granted that Luke is attributed um, to one of the disciples named Luke, a, uh, a, a doctor. But as we know that the, all of the scriptures were written in communities, right? And by community. It's not any one person. Um, communities brought the text together. So the communities of Luke... Um, the community that he belonged to, Luke and Acts, what are the agenda? Like, what's the agenda of Luke-Acts? And there are several, right? One a prevailing theme of Luke and Acts is uh, the nature of the kingdom of heaven. Um, consider the way in which the gospel according to Luke narrates Jesus' ministry. There's a lot of stories. Right? There's a lot of parables, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, the, uh, the parable of the so-called uh, prodigal son or the prodigal father. Story after story, whereas you know, the gospel according to Mark is more rapid fire stories, right? Just here it is, here it is, here it is. So Luke, like Acts, is about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. That this is what the kingdom of heaven, this is what, this is what the gospel is like. Acts then... Uh, really amplifies the nature of the kingdom of heaven, not in a parable, but it now in an in actual people. Um, and this is how the kingdom of heaven is demonstrated. This is how it works itself out because of the ministry of Jesus, because of the promises of Jesus. And so that was a prevailing theme, the kingdom of heaven. A second prevailing uh, theme of Luke and of Acts is the nature of 
the uh, relationship of the Jews and Gentiles. How do the Jews and Gentile communities belong to each other? How do we understand them to belong to the one covenant of God? And how do they relate to each other? And this will actually be uh, one of the two main uh, points of disagreement with Paul, right, and with Peter, between Paul and Peter, and Paul and the other, and other uh, disciples within the early church, right? And that's why we see many subtexts in other of Paul's letters, particularly in, uh, in Corinthians and in Galatians, sort of this undercurrent of what is the relationship of the two. And so those are the two prevalent themes of Luke and of Acts, the nature of the kingdom of heaven and the relationship of Jews and Gentiles and how they belong one to another. So in Acts here, as this, as this chapter opens for us, um, this text follows uh, chapter 8 that is like it's building in its Christian, it's, it's building a case. Where chapter 8 begins by talking about the stoning of one of the great deacons, right, Stephen. And that the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, uh, we read there that Saul of Tarsus, right, who will become Paul, Saul of Tarsus was present during the stoning of Stephen. And get this, while the people were still mourning and grieving, the fact that Stephen was killed and in the manner in which he was killed, chapter 8 is... Uh, wants us to understand that Saul not only gave approval to the stoning of Stephen, but that while people were still grieving and mourning, he went from house to house, rampaging the houses, and pulling, it says, they're dragging off both men and women and sent them to prison. Like, that is very vicious, right? It's evil. And, and so as we read about this Saul of Tarsus, we would be like, who is this guy? And so we could understand why Ananias will later, you know, uh, respond the way he does, right? When the risen Jesus tells Ananias to go and find this Saul of Tarsus and bless him. So, Right from the get-go, we already get this sense of this Saul of Tarsus is vicious, he's an animal, he's evil, he has no good intentions. When we talk about the nature of the kingdom of heaven, he's more like the nature of the kingdom of hell. And then chapter 8 continues after that to talk about how the disciples uh, met a certain magician, Simon the Magician. Now, if you know of any... or or if you encounter or encountered a real witch, and I'm, I'm not talking about someone who you regard as a witch, okay, <laughs> but a real witch, or someone who regard, who, who, you know, who, who, who partakes of, you know, that sort of thing, you know, Ouija boards and all that stuff. And this is not David Copperfield type of magician. I'm talking about like, you know, the dark arts type of thing. If you met someone like that and you said, I'd like to invite him or her 
to a tea party. You wouldn't want to. See, there's already people shaking their heads. But yet, this Simon the Magician in chapter 8 is transformed 180 degrees. Simon the Magician. We would think, okay, no, apostles, turn around. Go back, leave, and just go on to someone else. Simon the Magician's changed and transformed and praises God, right? And then it goes from there to talk about another encounter, this whole, all chapter 8. Another encounter of uh, Philip the Apostle who meets an Ethiopian eunuch. This Ethiopian eunuch accompanies Queen Candace of Ethiopia. And the eunuch hears St. Philip preach the gospel or shares the, the scriptures with him. And the Holy Spirit changes the Ethiopian eunuch to the point of the eunuch wonders out loud, what's preventing you from baptizing me here right now? Right? And they proceed to do that. So by the time we get to chapter 9, we've already had a demonstration of the kingdom of heaven in chapter 8 of here are two individuals seemingly beyond the salvation of God, beyond the redemption of Jesus Christ, will it happen to this Saul of Tarsus, right? It's like a, it's a dramatic performance right in front of us, and the curtains are like, intermission time, close the curtains, let's see what happens. And so as this unfolds, we encounter this Saul of Tarsus, and Tarsus, as I put in your outline, is the capital city of a province called Silesia, right? Um, northwest, northwest of, um, of Syria. By the way, if any of you are are not on uh, Facebook and are not, and therefore not following uh, Pastor Jack or the Outreach Foundation. They're doing quite well, all right? And uh, lots of wonderful photos as they're in this part of the world that we're reading about. Um, I forgot what their latest post was, if they were in Damascus or leaving Damascus, uh, but all wonderful photos of them offering uh, love and solidarity to our sisters and brothers uh, in, uh, in that part of the world. So let's continue to pray for Jack and the rest of the Outreach Foundation. He'll be back uh, next Tuesday night, the 19th of February. Um, and so as we encounter Saul, um, chapter 9 opens, he's breathing threats. Like you could almost feel the hatred that he has. He's breathing it, and then he proceeds to go to the high priest in Jerusalem to ask for letters. Now, presumably, based on this, uh, the gospel is thriving in Damascus, and Saul seems to be sort of like the extension of the arm of the high priest. Stamp out, right? Stamp out any, any evidence of the people of the way. Now, Pastor Jack had preached about this a couple of weeks ago or three weeks ago about right, those who are followers of Jesus were called the people of the way. Uh, Jesus is, is the way, the truth, and the life. Following Jesus' way, Jesus' pattern of living is a new way of living, a new way of thinking, right? So all those who follow Jesus were called people of the way. So Saul gets letters from uh, the high priest. It's arguable whether the high priest in Jerusalem had any jurisdiction over uh, churches in, in Damascus. 
And I, I noted that in your outline. But nevertheless, we get this picture of that Saul is getting authorization from the high priest, backing, if you will, from the high priest in order to proceed with his persecution. Now, as he goes, as the story unfolds, um, he goes off and on his way, here is the risen Lord who makes an appearance. Now, this is an extraordinary appearance because it is on the basis of this appearance of the resurrected Jesus and the retelling of this encounter that Paul will continue to retell and retell this story in order to give legitimacy to his ministry. Because recall that the two uh, criteria for anyone to be an apostle, so not a disciple, because everyone is a disciple, or not everyone, but uh, those who are following Jesus, whether they were with him in his ministry or not, they were all disciples, right? They were all students of Jesus. The question is, who were apostles? Who were those who were specially charged uh, to, uh, to equip, uh, to, to uh, to equip the disciples for ministry or to plant churches, right? It were the apostles. And the two criteria were what? They, have, they would have had to have been personally uh, with Jesus in his ministry, and they would have had to personally witness the resurrection on that Easter morning, right? And only a few qualified uh, to be an apostle. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, we read of how, you know, the 11 apostles were trying to fill in that 12th spot that Judas Iscariot had vacated because he had uh, taken his own life and so forth. And only two men were qualified, Matthias and, and, uh, and um, Barabbas or Barsabas. Who is that? Barabbas, I think it is. Um, and they chose Matthias. And so... The Apostle Paul will tell that story, will tell this story, that Jesus met me. And he'll repeat it in chapter 22 and in chapter 26 of Acts. He will repeat that story again and again. In, in essence, he's going to say, I count that even though I wasn't personally with Jesus, even though... I wasn't on that first Easter morning. I am an apostle. Um, I am, here are my bona fides. Um, here is my union card that permits me to be among you. And why is that so important? Because people will question. Even after this encounter, his calling is not a utopian, everything... Everyone will listen to him. Everyone will welcome him. In fact, the two great challenges that the Apostle Paul will encounter are not only those on the outside the church, those who don't understand the gospel or those who reject it altogether. His greatest resistance will be those inside the church. And his letters to Corinth and his letters to Galatians will bear this up will bear this self out as people are questioning, are you really an apostle? And he always is having to, to explain, no, I'm apostle of Jesus. Or, and in Acts chapter 22 and in Acts chapter 26, he will tell this conversion story um, and we'll get to those in a, in a few minutes. So the risen Jesus meets him in this extraordinary appearance. 
and speaks to him in a, um, in a, uh, a vocative. Uh, he is directing him, uh, Saul, Saul. Now, whenever we see someone call someone, or when we hear and read about the Lord calling someone twice, like, that's a signal. Something's about to happen to this person, right? Try that to your, and you probably try, uh, try that with your, with your child or children or your grandchildren, right? Call them once, twice, maybe three times. And if you, if you say it the third time, like, okay, if you don't come here, if you don't come downstairs by the third time, you're going to get it, right? This is only two times. And we know in the Old Testament when the Lord deals with someone, and that there's something that's going to happen that's so pivotal, the Lord addresses them only twice, right? They only have two shots. There's no third time. It's Abraham, Abraham, right? Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel, and then God does something. And it's almost like, okay, curtain closed. Let's see what the Lord will do. Well, here it is, Saul, Saul. Now, when the Lord addresses Saul, Saul, what is the direct question that the risen Jesus says to Saul of Tarsus? Why are you persecuting me? Now, here, the risen Lord is, um, is in essence saying that when you persecute the church, you're persecuting me. That there is an inextricable bond between believers, the body of Christ, and the risen Jesus. Now, he's, he's not at all saying that the church is Jesus. Okay, that's not what he's saying. That to love the church, to love those whom I have given my life for, is loving me. Right? To love your neighbor is to love God. To love Jesus, you have to love his people, right? Which means the reverse is also true. To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. Recall in Matthew 25, when Jesus tells the disciples, remember, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And the disciples said, when did we do that, Lord? Remember, and then he said, when you do these things to the least of these, you do it unto me. That's what he's saying. There is an inextricable link between when you do something to the body of Christ, you are doing it to me. And that's what he's addressing to, uh, to Saul of Tarsus. That all the persecution and all the vengeance and all the hatred and all the violence that you've inflicted, you're doing it to me. Now, this inextricable link between the two really came to um, a, uh, 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 really magnified yesterday in the foreground in the last five minutes at La Costa Glen. Yesterday. One of the residents at La Costa Glen had noticed in his Bibles, and this is where we're going to compare versions on this point. One of the residents of La Costa Glen in the final five minutes of our study asked, Pastor Neil, um, why is it at the end of, uh, of chapter 4 and chapter 5 does it say, uh, 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 
Why do you persecute me and why do you kick the goads? G-O-A-D-S. Not goats, but goads. Now, how many of you have the King James Version or... Uh, can you read that one? Okay, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks. P-R-I-C-K-S. How many of you have the new King James Version? Anyone? Okay, that's the King James Version. In the new King James Version, uh, it, says, it translates the word pricks into goads. G-O-A-D-S. Why do you kick against the pricks or the goads? Now, what's a prick or a pricks or the goads? The pricks or goads were these timber pieces of wood that were slender on one side and, uh, and uh, pointy on the other. And farmers would use it to hit um, an ox. And in kicking, the ox would, of course, instinctively kick back and would hurt itself. Okay, now, the reason why most of our versions, and mine doesn't have it, I'm the New Revised Standard Version, and most other English versions don't have that phrase, because there was an art, uh, there's a discrepancy between early manuscripts. Okay, the early the manuscript from which the King James Version was relied on for its translation back in the 16th century, those manuscripts didn't have or did have that phrase. In, in other manuscripts, particularly the ones from Egypt, the Alexandrian manuscripts had it, or didn't have it, that is. And so there was a discrepancy. So more modern translations leave it out. Now, I made reference to Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26, the other times in which the Apostle Paul will recount this conversion story. Now, Acts chapter 22, if you want to flip there, Acts chapter 22. So put your finger on Acts 9 because, of course, we're going to go back to that. But Acts chapter 22. <clears throat> Acts chapter 22 in verses uh, 6. 6 all the way through 21. Acts 22, 6 through 21. There is a mob of people. Acts chapter 22, verses 6 through 21. This is the second occurrence that the Apostle Paul will tell of this conversion story. Okay, let me just set the scene because we only have a few minutes to look at this, but I'll summarize it and I invite you to read it. Acts chapter 22, verses 6 through 20. This is the second time that he'll retell the story. There's a mob of people. There's a mob of people who go to the Apostle Paul and who, who tell him that you are desecrating the temple by telling people about Jesus and so forth. And he goes on to retell the conversion story that we read in Acts chapter 9, but he adds a little detail. He adds a little detail in, chapter seven, in verse 17 by saying that the risen Jesus made a second appearance to him in the temple when he came back to Jerusalem. And that the encounter was that while he was praying, Jesus came to him and said, hurry and get out of Jerusalem. Right? He tells that story in order to give reason of why he's in the temple in the first place and that he's not desecrating the temple. Right? So he adds that detail that's not in chapter 9 in order to answer his opponents. Okay, so get that. Now, chapter 26. Flip to chapter 26. 
And in verse 12 through verse 18, this is now the third time that he tells of his conversion. Okay? Acts chapter 26, 12 through 18. We are going to see that phrase, kick against the goads or kick against the pricks, in chapter 26, verse 14. Now, all manuscripts have that there. Do you see that there? 26.14. Do you see that there? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. Do you see that? Okay. Do you all see that? Do you all see it there? It hurts yourself. Okay, so yours, and yours is a new application Bible? Okay. So, whether it be it hurts yourself or... In, in, in many of ours, it hurts you to kick against the goads, right? All manuscripts are in agreement that it is in 2614. Okay, chapter 9, it's arguable. King James Version has that. Now, why is that important? This is the third time that the Apostle Paul will tell his, of his conversion story, right? And in this scene, in chapter 26, he is before the imperial court of King Agrippa. And King Agrippa is essentially saying, like, you know, Pilate asking Jesus, why are you telling people about Jesus and so forth? And the Apostle Paul will give his story, this one, and at the end, right, at the end of the story, at the end of the story, or at the end of his testimony, he asks King Agrippa, King Agrippa, you also believe in the prophets, don't you? Do you see that? 26, verse 17. He says as the final thing to King Agrippa, he says this, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Right? He had spent his testimony before King Agrippa to tell of the promises of God through the prophets, that here is the promises of God through the prophets, through the ages, and I am the recipient of that promise in the risen Lord. And so he addresses King Agrippa quite sarcastically. Uh, uh, you do believe, King Agrippa, in those prophets, don't you? Because I know you do. Now, why does he do that? And how does this have to do with the, king of the, the kicking of the goads? That phrase, kicking of the goads or kicking against the pricks, is a, uh, was an ancient Greek proverb that almost everyone in the ancient world knew what it was. It would be like me saying, you are caught between a rock and a... Okay, now all of us know that. Well, that's the equivalent of that. Now, where did that come from? Where did that phrase come from? Kicking against the goads or kicking against the pricks. It was adapted from the 5th century BC. So this is five centuries before the birth of Christ. Remember in your Greek mythology class or English literature, Euripides? Remember Euripides? Okay, well, Euripides... Euripides, who wrote a Greek tragedy, people read Greek tragedies, right, literature. Euripides wrote a, a famous uh, 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 play or song called Bacchae, B-A-C-C-H-A-E, Bacchae, okay? And in this, quick summary, because this was like, people knew what this is, you know, sort of like if we know about Lord of the Flies, or Great Expectations. People knew Bacchae and knew Euripides. And this is what Paul is citing here because it was a common proverb. 
in Bacchae, it's the tale of Dionysus. And Dionysus was half divine and half human. He was, he was believed to be, in ancient Greek mythology, the son of Zeus and the son of a human mother. He had a half-brother named Pentheus. Pentheus was king of the Thebes. And Dionysus confronts his half-brother because he's upset that his half-brother, Pentheus, has prevented the Thebans from offering worship and sacrifice to his half-brother, Dionysus, who is god of wine and so on and so forth. So Dionysus addresses his half-brother, King Pentheus, and says in line 794 through 795, in essence, why are uh, mortals ought not to battle against the gods, G-O-D-S. This phrase of kicking against the goads or kicking against the pricks is adapted from that line, in essence saying to Pentheus, why are you resisting? You're going to lose. You are between a rock and a hard place. Now, the tale goes on to say that Pentheus continued to resist Dionysus and he is killed eventually. Now, that particular proverb is lifted and folks in the ancient, uh, uh, um, ancient Greece and so on and so forth repeated that again and again, kicking against the goads. Why? It's saying, if you try to resist the gods, it is like the ox who kicks against the goad. The ox will hurt itself. Pentheus, you will hurt your mortal, you will hurt yourself if you try to resist God. Get it? So when the risen Jesus speaks to Paul, so flip back now to chapter 9. When Jesus addresses, I know this is a lot, but when Jesus, when Jesus addresses the Saul of Tarsus to say, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting the church? You're actually not only, you're actually not only persecuting me, but what is he also saying? You're hurting yourself. You're hurting yourself. That's why when Paul says later in Corinth, right, when, when we rejoice, all rejoice, it's this unity, right? We're all connected. We're all networked to each other. I'm connected to you, you're connected to me, we're connected to people in Syria and to Lebanon and so forth. We're connected to Jesus, Jesus connected to them. When you bless one, you bless them all. When you hurt one, you hurt them all. And you hurt yourself or you bless yourself. And that's what's going on in this conversation. When you persecute me, you are hurting yourself. Now, I noted in your outline that when the risen Lord tells him, you must go and find a man named Ananias. I noted here that this is called the day of divine necessity. In short, that phrase, you must go, is you are an, under an obligation that you can do no other. Why? Because wherever Jesus encounters people, God will do something, right? God will call your heart to do something. Something will happen. Even though... A conversion may not happen right away. God has done something. 
Um, that's why each encounter with the Word of God, if you share the Word of God with a loved one or, or with a friend who, after years and years of praying, you don't know if the Lord is changing their mind and heart, right? If you're sharing it with your, your child or children or your grandchildren or a next-door neighbor, and they just seem, wow, they're not changing. You know, they just seem so stubborn and hard-hearted. We don't know what the Lord is doing, but this is proof positive that each thing, the Holy Spirit is chiseling the hard rock ice in people's minds and hearts. And we trust that. That's how powerful the Word of God is. And so by the time we get to Ananias, right, this is the tale of two men because who needs a transformation as well? Now Ananias, as I noted here, there's at least three Ananiases in the book of Acts. This is not the Ananias who we encounter earlier on in the book of Acts who's married to Sapphira, right? Sapphira and Ananias, the husband and wife duo who embezzled the, the apostles. And the apostles were instructed to, um, to kill off Ananias because he didn't belong in the community. And this is not the Ananias later on in the book of Acts who's the high priest who's with King Agrippa. This is not that Ananias. Ananias was a common name and Ananias' name means cloud of darkness. Cloud of darkness. Now, Ananias also needs a little transformation. You know why? Because we are like Ananias. We and it's understandable. I don't blame Ananias for, for saying what he did. Right? Jesus comes to Ananias and says, can you go and, um, yeah, bless that man. Look for him. Right? Bless that man. Yeah, the one who was, uh, you know, killing you all. Can you go and bless him? I mean, can you imagine if the Lord told you to do that? You would be thinking like, Lord, you must be crazy. There is like no way that I'm going to put myself in harm's way against this man who we know is the way he is. All right? But what happens? Just like when, when the risen Lord encounters Saul of Tarsus and there's a divine necessity to do something, Ananias also, he is not exempted from that divine necessity. Ananias must go. And that's what happens, as we know, right? Ananias places his hand upon Saul of Tarsus, and Saul is transformed. Now, how many of you are elders or deacons, whether uh, presently or, uh, or, or previously? Ruling elders or deacons, right? And you all know, the, and everyone has witnessed this, when we ordain and install elders and deacons and, and pastors, just as we did last month with a new set of elders and deacons, the laying on of hands. That's a powerful symbol. It's a, it's a symbol of the community um, asking the Holy Spirit, right, to come upon um, the weight of people's hands, the collective weight, right, the weight of ministry, the weight of God's love, right, but knowing that there's, there's a lot of hands, which is that we're part of a community. Well, Ananias is doing that as well upon, upon Saul. And so, uh, Saul then is, is, um, is, is blessed by that. Um, he is then, as we read, was baptized. Now, it was asked at La Costa Glen yesterday, why is it that Saul of Tarsus had to meet Ananias? Why, why didn't the risen Lord just transform Saul of Tarsus, give him sight, and send him off to do his ministry? Why go through Ananias? Why was that significant? 
That was significant because Ananias presumably is a, is a leader or is someone who is acquainted with the church in Damascus and they know him and so forth. Can you imagine if Saul of Tarsus walked into the Damascus church and said, Hi everyone, I'm here. I just met Jesus. I'm transformed. I have a new life. I'm ready to go. Can you imagine? I heard a calling from God. And they said, no, you haven't. You're the murderer. Oh no, I've heard. Believe me. I've received the call of God, really. The Holy Spirit. I sense my call. Right? Maybe you've, you've met folks who are like that. I have. Uh, and they're pretty scary because they just sort of go on their own. I feel like the Lord has called me. Oh, really? What have you been smoking? You know? Ananias is a necessary part of God's calling in order to authorize, in order to vouch, right? To authenticate. And so as Saul goes back to the church and so forth, like Ananias can say no. His life has changed. Now, does that mean, again, that, uh, that, that Saul will become Paul, that, his, uh, that others will immediately receive him? I said no, right? He will continually face that challenge, that questioning, are you really an apostle? Are you really, um, are you really a, uh, one who was called? And, and he and Peter, of course, will have a temporary rift because Peter will also wonder, well, why is it that the message is being sent to the Gentiles? Right? It should only be about uh, the, the Jewish community and those in the diaspora and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of enlightening that needs to happen on so many levels. Yes, the focus on this, on this text is Saul, rightly so, because he's one of the greatest apostles um, in, uh, in, in the history of the Christian church, not only for the impact that he had in establishing churches, the number of lives that, he, uh, that the Lord used him to touch, and those that he mentored. Barnabas and Timothy and, and, and the list goes on and on. Um, but his commitment to the gospel and the way that he demonstrated and exhibited the nature of the kingdom of heaven. Remember going back to the agenda of the gospel according to Luke. That Jews and Gentiles were always intended to be part of the one covenant. And that's why the ministry of reconciliation that Jesus enacted is now uh, is now extended uh, to Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul. Amen. So a lot of things going on here. We got conversion 180 degrees. We have uh, Jesus encountering, um, us connected to Jesus, Jesus connected to us, us hurting ourselves, us being blessed, and so forth. What would you all like to talk about? Doreen. Paul, the, the story of Paul is part of the essence of the story of Jesus. And so without Paul, Jesus, I don't think, would be as known in the world today. Mm. Because these stories are the ones that most people hear over and over now, mm. where before there wasn't that story. Mm. <clears throat> Would the ministry, would the uh, message of Jesus have continued even with the, without Paul? Right? Is that, is that your question? It's possible, but how nice that we have it. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 
uh, we're grateful, I mean, for, for our brother Paul, right? For our brother Paul and his calling. He had a very important, very important place in, the, um, in how the gospel was, uh, was disseminated. Hi, Pastor. Thank you. You really spoke many, many themes today and many wonderful things that I learned. And one of the ones that called my attention the most is how prepared um, Paul or so was um, uh, to talk. All that he had learned previous, including Greek mythology, was used by God to talk to others, even making funny jokes like, are you going to fight against the gods and something like that? That was very important, that, uh, what he had. But the apostles did not have this preparation. They were, uh, they were not educated. So at some point, Saul, Jesus used Saul a lot. And... He, he didn't use that way the apostles, the, the disciples. So would, would the, the disciples weren't at that level that um, Saul was, and that's why they, they weren't as important as Saul in the New Testament? As I'm understanding, so let me double check that I understood your question. At least two parts. One... Uh, that the Apostle Paul, who was learned, who knew Greek literature, the context, right, that he was able to relate. And number two, did the Lord use the other disciples, right, the other apostles in that same manner? Were they also aware of, you know, the surrounding, is that, is that accurate, the surrounding context? Were they likewise as uh, important or as uh, yeah like do they know the context of with whom that they're ministering is that the question yeah so we do I mean we do read here and there about the other you know the other apostles here and there you know uh, primarily Peter right we hear about him we James write a whole book on James um, we don't hear much about some of the others Thaddeus and Bartholomew and, you know, Andrew and who are the others? Um, Thomas, right? Um, many of those apostles were sent out beyond Jerusalem and the Mediterranean, right? Many of them were dispersed to other parts of the world. Uh, James presumably, you know, was sent to Spain, um, uh, Mark was sent to India. Philip to Ethiopia, right? So different parts. And so the, the concentration of the New Testament letters were primarily those apostles and Paul, among, chief among them, uh, the ministry that concentrated around Jerusalem and around the uh, the Mediterranean. 
And so that as the other apostles are sent this place and this place and this place and this place, the concentration of the New Testament body of letters is on those apostles whose ministry was concentrated in, the, in that part. Um, and so to read about the ministry or to, you know, the churches, for instance, in Ethiopia, or the churches in Egypt, uh, right, the churches in India, um, theologians and church historians who are, who, you know, who, who are knowledgeable, knowledgeable about that can speak more, I think, eloquently about, yeah, so how did they receive the gospel tradition through, through this apostle or this apostle? We can surmise that because the gospel flourished in those parts, that those apostles uh, took the time right, to know the culture, to interact with, with the indigenous populations, just as Paul did. Now, as I hopefully showed in, in pointing us to Acts 22 and Acts 26, the apostle Paul will tailor his message, isn't it? Depending on who he's speaking with. He will tell, as we saw, the conversion, his conversion story in Acts 22, because the mob was concerned about whether he was desecrating the temple, what does he do? He talks about the temple, right? When he wants to address King Agrippa, he will address King Agrippa accordingly. So he tailors the message in a way that will speak to his audience, in a way that what is the heart issue that is lurking there and then let's tailor the gospel message in a way that it is like a sword that will pierce it. Right? That will pierce it. Can you imagine if he went to King Agrippa and he focused on that part of the gospel that says, God is with you. God loves you. Uh, you know, God is your shepherd. Now, while that's true, right, that part of the gospel won't hit King Agrippa because it's not part of the context. So yeah, so the apostles were very, were very contextual and the apostle Paul will, will bring in the Greek mythology and the, and the poets and all of that because of the audience that he speaks to. So, ball, so question, uh, ballpark, what do I think? What percentage of the New Testament is the writings of Paul? Elder Laura Metzger who led the chronological Bible study what would you guesstimate would be in the New Testament, the writings of Paul? I know. Maybe 20? I would venture to say maybe about 20%, but again, I, I go back to what I said at the very beginning, that all these letters were written by communities, right? By, by the community. So even here, as Paul writes his various letters, remember, he will, he will dictate some of his letters from prison, uh, and he has a... Uh, uh, you know, he has a, uh, um, you know, and uh, uh, the ancient office of the amanuensis, the note taker, right? Um, and so, yeah, it takes, it takes a village uh, to, to, write, to write all of this. It's not any one, any one author. Yeah. So about 20%, I would venture to say. Uh, well, this, this is more a comment, but it, it, God guides everything. And I don't think that two well-educated Jewish charismatic people could be carrying on the gospel, or three or four, because Jewish people always argued. All the, all the teachers and all the, you know, there was always this little opinion there and this little opinion there. So I think 
because even uh, when, when Paul was talking about, you know, some of you like Apollos and some of you like Paul, he says, just don't do that. So there were other well-educated people, but I think God knew what he was doing when he just it picked one who was the right one, and the fact is he had to knock him off his horse to make him, you know, see the way yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And so it just feels like, you know, it was the right thing that there was this one key person, even though he developed a lot of key people too. Mm. I, I just don't think they could have taken more intellectual um, discourse than what Paul had. <laughs> My question is, other than John, were the other um, disciples all martyred? Mm. Martyred in the, in, the, in the usual sense of martyr or martyr in the technical sense? I don't know of the others. Yeah, I don't know how St. Thomas met his death or Mark or, yeah, I, I don't know. Most of them were four or five maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, we don't have a, a, a definitive idea of how most of them, died. maybe four or five did, but the others we don't know. Okay, so question for those who went to far-flung places, do we know how they died? And it's just based on the, uh, on the church traditions of those, of those areas. And so, you know, when uh, uh, presumably when uh, Peter, you know, Peter died and was hung upside down. Uh, St. Thomas, I don't know how he died. Uh, St. Andrew, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That is outside of my expertise. The, term, yeah. oh, the terminology of apostle, were, were they called apostles at that time? And was that something that they would have said, he's an apostle now? Yeah, or? so apostolos, right? So okay. apostolos was a special calling. Uh, it's, it means those who are sent, right? Mm -hmm. So calling the church apostolic, we are an apostolic church. The church is sent. We are sent out by the Lord, right? But the particular office of apostle is now you're sent. So those who were disciples, among the disciples, and, and disciple just means student, right? So all of us are disciples, but among the disciples from which some, those 11, were, were called to be apostles. They were specifically charged to be sent out to establish churches and to equip to equip and to teach, right, those disciples in ministry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and so, I didn't, wasn't real clear on why he, Paul was saying he was an apostle. Because he had the, uh, Jesus spoke to him, or? Yeah, so, yes. <clears throat> right, so based on this conversion story and the fact that the risen Lord appears to him and mm -hmm. gives him the, 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 the charge, okay. you will be, you will be a minister. You will be the apostle, or you'll be the minister to the Gentiles. Right? That okay. his his ministry is to be sent out to the Gentiles, but he he Paul is going to continually having to defend that he is a bona fide apostle. Mm, I see. Right? Because of the two criteria, he didn't meet the two criteria based on what the other apostles believed. Uh, were the only two qualifications, okay. that being uh, having had had to be a personal uh, a witness to the Easter morning, and secondly, 
would have had to personally been side by side with Jesus in his earthly ministry. All righty. If there's no others, uh, as you uh, go to your small groups, let us look to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, we are uh, so grateful that you uh, come to us and you come to your people in so many places and throughout time. That indeed, O oh Lord, where you are, you change and transform lives and you call us, you call your people in every place and every time um, to, uh, to change and to transform and you call us, O oh Lord, to do something for the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we're grateful for this testimony of, of our brother Paul, uh, who is with you, Lord, in, uh, in eternity. Might we be faithful, O oh Lord, to your call upon us as not only followers of Jesus, but as your church, that, would be, that we would be about blessing others, so that in blessing others, we bless your name. And so, Lord, as my sisters in Christ go to into their small groups, uh, might the risen Lord and the power and presence of the Holy Spirit be with them and accompany them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone.